On Halloween, you're accustomed to the festivities that come with the holiday. Costumes, candy, and playful pranks are part of many communities who embrace the fun and spirit and revelry. But in 2012, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, one man let the evil lurking within him take control. Instead of celebrating the holiday, he unleashed a darkness that would send shockwaves through his community. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. This episode is a special one. It's the extended version of an episode for a project that myself and several other independent podcasters have been working on. Please listen to the short version and several other stories as part of our project called When Darkness Calls. I'll be sharing them with you in the next couple of weeks as bonus episodes. In the meantime, let's tiptoe into this Halloween episode. Rebecca Gay loved Halloween. The trailer park in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, where she lived, was a sea of tiny homes, but hers stood out because it was covered in scarecrows. She had 13 of them covering the mobile home and her tiny yard. She was excited about the spooky season because she was going to take her three-year-old son trick-or-treating for the first time. It was a season of firsts for her. She had her own home, one she could decorate however she wanted, and scarecrows were Rebecca's must-haves for All Hallows' Eve 2012. Let's be honest, nothing holds a candle to a classic scarecrow. Rebecca graduated high school and attended cosmetology school before she unexpectedly got pregnant with her son, Conway. She and Conway's father didn't stay together, but that didn't deter Rebecca. She was happy to be a mother, and she was good at it. After graduating cosmetology school, she started doing hair, but it wasn't as lucrative as she hoped. Now that she had a son to support, she needed financial stability. So she took a job at a Goodwill store, where she had recently been promoted to head cashier. She was a great employee who hadn't missed a shift since she started working there. It was a job that could support her family, and she was grateful for it. In the fall of 2012, and at the age of 24, life was feeling really good for Rebecca. She had a great job, one she really enjoyed, a new home of her own, and a wedding to plan for. She and her fiancé, Aaron Quinn, were excited to start a new chapter of their lives together. They'd been together for a while now and had lived under his parents' roof prior to the new trailer. Aaron and his family accepted Conway as if he was Aaron's own son. This was one of the many things Rebecca loved about him. She had a lot on her plate as a single mother for so long. She had learned to communicate well and to use all the resources available to her but it felt very nice to share responsibilities with someone who she felt had her back. In August, Rebecca and Conway said goodbye to the comfort of Aaron's parents' house, and with the help of her extended family, she moved into the mobile home she was renting. The move was necessary because Rebecca needed to be closer to her workplace, and it brought her closer to her mother's home, which was a blessing for both of them. Aaron eagerly awaited the opportunity to join Rebecca and Conway, but for the moment he planned to stay with his parents until he found a new job that was closer to Rebecca. Although she wanted Aaron by her side, she knew she had to be patient. She would have to rely on her side of the family for the time being, but this wouldn't be a problem because Rebecca was incredibly close with her family, especially her sister, her mother, and her soon-to-be stepfather. They attended church together at Christ Community Fellowship Church. Rebecca's mother was engaged to John White, the pastor of the church. They had met six years earlier, and John had recently proposed. 
When her mom got engaged, Rebecca was happy for her, although early on she had some reservations about John, as most daughters would. She had good reason for her first impressions. John had told Sally and his congregation that he had a less than savory past. He'd been to jail. He relayed that he'd been present when a friend of his overdosed and that, instead of calling the police or anyone to tell them about what happened, he ran and left the scene. He'd been doing drugs and was afraid of being caught. He went to jail for this and felt horrible about what he had done. While in jail, he attended church, asked for forgiveness, and believed fully that he had been forgiven for his sins. He hoped that everyone in his congregation would forgive him as well. His purpose in life now was to right his wrongs and teach others about forgiveness and acceptance. Sally was smitten with John, and soon enough, Rebecca warmed up to him too. She made him feel warm and appreciated. Soon, John was babysitting Conway and helping both Sally and Rebecca when he could. This included helping Rebecca move into her new trailer, which was just a short walk from Sally and John's. They watched and helped her fix it up, and they smiled and teased her about her spooky decor. They listened to her talk about her costume for Conway and their plans for Halloween. She'd spoken with her co-workers and excitedly arranged to work the earliest shift that day so she'd have plenty of time to pick Conway up and get him ready for trick-or-treating. Her enthusiasm was contagious. So when her co-workers arrived for the day shift on Halloween morning, and Rebecca wasn't there, they were immediately concerned. She'd always been on time, so this was very unusual. They tried calling her cell phone, but it went straight to voicemail. They decided to go check on her at her house. When they arrived, they didn't see her car in the driveway where it normally was, but they spotted it from her home. It was across the street at a local bar, backed up into some brush at the back of the bar. It was weird. The bar was locked, and so was Rebecca's home. Her co-workers became even more concerned, so they got in touch with her landlord, the owner of her trailer, and he came to unlock the door. She wasn't inside, and neither was Conway, but her purse was sitting on the kitchen table. It was a nice purse, and according to one of her co-workers, it was one of her prized possessions. She wouldn't go anywhere without that purse, and it was just sitting there, wide open. Her cell phone and keys were gone. As they searched her house looking for her, they noticed that the carpet in the living room was matted down, except for one small area, and it looked like there were small red stains on it. This was too much. They called the police and then more of Rebecca's friends and family who came and searched the neighborhood. They were extremely grateful to find out that Conway was with his biological father. The police told the family that if Rebecca didn't come pick Conway up at the prearranged time of 4 p.m., they would begin an official search. That time came and went with no sign of Rebecca. At that point, police entered the house themselves. They, too, noticed that a certain area of the carpet looked like it had been cleaned, or someone tried to clean it. In other words, the carpet itself was matted in most places, but in this one particular area it was fluffed up, as if it had been scrubbed. It also looked like some kind of struggle had taken place, as some items were knocked over and not in their normal places. The police interviewed Rebecca's family and friends. They learned that she had been dating Aaron, so he was their first point of interest. Aaron told the police that he had last spoken to Rebecca the night before her disappearance. They had talked on the phone for about an hour, and she seemed fine. But when he texted her on Halloween morning, she didn't reply. In fact, it seemed to him that the message didn't go through at all. 
This meant that either she had blocked him, her phone was off and couldn't receive messages, or her phone was no longer in service. This was all strange to him because they hadn't been fighting, so she wouldn't have blocked him, and he thought she was home all night, so surely she would have charged her phone. It was very unlike her not to be responsive. The police believed that Aaron was genuinely upset about Rebecca's disappearance. Between his parents and his work, Aaron was cleared fairly quickly. After Aaron, they moved on to Rebecca's ex, the father of her son. His name was Chad. When he was brought in, he was cooperative and said that he and Rebecca were co-parenting well. They didn't have any major issues between them, and eventually he grew angry with police because he was frustrated that they kept questioning him when he should be out looking for the person who took her. He wanted to join the search himself, and they should be looking too. They tended to believe him, which left them baffled. There was no sign of forced entry at Rebecca's home. Another lead they followed was that her car had been found parked near the bar, a one that she frequented. So they interviewed the employees at the bar, but none of them remembered seeing her the night before. Police briefly considered the possibility that Rebecca had run away, but they didn't believe that was likely. She had a son and a good job, and she was very close to her family and friends. It was decided that Rebecca had most likely been abducted, and they believed that whoever took her was someone she knew and trusted. As police began to build a timeline for Rebecca's disappearance, they learned that Rebecca was going to meet Chad to exchange custody of Conway at a Myers department store parking lot. When he arrived to pick up Conway, Rebecca wasn't there. Instead, John White, Rebecca's soon-to-be stepfather, dropped Conway off. This was somewhat odd, but not totally unusual. John had babysat and dropped Conway off before, but what was strange was that Rebecca hadn't said anything to Chad about John being the one to do the drop-off. The investigators turned their eyes towards John. He had been helping with the search efforts and was willing to speak with police. They learned about him being a pastor at a local church and that he had called all his congregants that morning, asking them for help with Rebecca's search and to pray for her safe return. He told them that he went to Rebecca's that morning to babysit and pick up Conway. This was a very common occurrence. He said he didn't actually see her, but he heard her yell or someone who sounded like her yell from the bathroom saying, Hey, I'm in here. He assumed it was Rebecca, so he made himself comfortable on the couch. She had made arrangements with him to come early because she was working the early shift that day and she wanted Conway to be able to sleep in. He would come over to stay in the house and babysit until it was time to take Conway to his dad's. John said he didn't actually see Rebecca that morning, but at 6.30, she said goodbye and asked him to turn down the heat for the day. He fell asleep on the couch until 8 when Conway woke him up. Conway was very excited about Halloween and wanted to wear his costume all day, so John got him dressed and then took him to meet his dad at the grocery store parking lot. As John was being questioned, the police noticed that he had scratches on his hands and a cut on his nose. They asked him about those injuries, and he explained that he was doing some work in his workshop when a shelf fell down and hit him in the face. As the interview continued, police officers asked John to take them to his trailer, which he did willingly. He was able to show them a shelf that had fallen, and police found nothing else of interest in the trailer. As they continued their investigation, they asked friends and families about John. 
Members of his congregation were happy to share how much they liked him. He was a great pastor, and he'd done a lot for the church. He was always happy to help the congregation with projects. While most of the feedback was good, there were one or two people who described John as a little strange. Since John was the last person to be in Rebecca's presence, they asked John to take a lie detector test. He said no. Of course, the police tell him that if he's not hiding anything, he should take the test. Sally, Rebecca's mom, and John's soon-to-be wife agreed. She said, John, you should definitely take it. You don't have anything to worry about. This will clear your name. After a short time, John reluctantly agreed to do the polygraph. And I'm sure I've mentioned this before, and many of you true crime lovers already know this, but polygraphs don't work. Polygraphs and blood spatter analysis are not reliable enough on their own to close a case. In fact, polygraphs are inadmissible in court, but they are still used regularly for investigative purposes. The police in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, didn't have their own polygraph machine, so they planned to take John to the nearest police station that had one. It was about an hour away in Lansing. While on the drive, the officer who was driving John made small talk. He knew that John was nervous, and he was hoping to calm the man down. So he asked him about himself and his background, and eventually asked John what he was worried about. He admitted to the officer that he was hesitant about taking the polygraph because he had a criminal past, and he thought that his past might make him a suspect. And he was right. He told the officer that he was tried on an attempted murder case, but that it was thrown out and that he ultimately only served two years. Well, he was lying. Unlike the scarecrows that decorated Rebecca's house, the officer had a brain and he used it. He looked up John's criminal record. The man who costumed himself as a preacher every day was anything but saintly. The man who had his congregation pray for his soon-to-be daughter-in-law and who asked community members to help search for her was a man of many faces. He was a husband, a father, a pastor, and a murderer. As a young man, John served in the Navy, then worked as a long-haul truck driver. In 1980, he was 22 years old. He was married and living with a family in Battle Creek, Michigan. He invited a 17-year-old girl, his neighbor, who was named Teresa Atherton, to his basement to look at his racetrack. She had to have been a sweet, kind girl because no 17-year-old girl I know would be truly interested in seeing some dude's Hot Wheels set or whatever he had going on in that basement. She was likely just pretending to be interested out of kindness. As he led her down the stairs, he made small talk, making Teresa feel comfortable. As she turned to face the racetrack, he stabbed her under the right shoulder blade. He kept stabbing her, and he smiled as he did it. He stabbed her 14 times in total, and then he choked her and told her, she's going to go now. He said, I'm really sorry you have to go like this, but what the fuck? You're just a woman. Teresa was a woman, and she's amazing. Miraculously, she survived this brutal assault, and John White was arrested. A jury quickly convicted him of attempted murder. He apologized and asked for help instead of prison time. He told the judge that he wouldn't listen to people who tried to help him. He did have a problem, and he realized that now. The judge responded that it was by the sheer grace of God that Teresa had survived, 
the jury sentenced John to five to ten years in prison and recommended mental health counseling. For her part, Teresa breathed a sigh of relief when she heard that John had been locked away. But little did she know, John had appealed his case and won. He argued that his attorney had failed to raise the insanity defense and claimed that he would have pled insanity if he had been given the chance. Shockingly, it was revealed that John's father, who was paying for his attorney, refused to cover the costs of the required psychiatric exam for an insanity plea. John accused his attorney of neglecting his best interests, and instead of a new trial, he was granted a new sentence, which essentially meant that he was a free man. After serving just over two years, he was released from jail and placed on probation, contingent on receiving mental health treatment. The woman John had attempted to murder, Teresa, remained oblivious to his release. This was before the implementation of the Victims' Rights Act, which would have ensured that she was notified of any updates in her case. Imagine her terror when years later, Teresa found herself standing in line at the Secretary of State's office, only to hear her name called out. When she turned around, she was terrified to see John standing there with a chilling smile. The sheer insanity and terror of that moment is unimaginable to me. The audacity of him to call out her name like that. He wasn't sorry. It seemed to me like he wanted to see the shock and surprise on her face. Not only had she endured a horrific experience, but she had been denied the basic courtesy of knowing that her would-be killer was free. She had carried on with her life, assuming he was in jail, only to come face to face with the man who had tried to end her life. The panic she must have felt in that moment would have been overwhelming. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Fast forward several years to 1994. Believe it or not, John was still married to his first wife. I don't know why or how she stayed with him, but she did. She stuck by his side through his jail time and she was pregnant with his third child. In return for her love and dedication, John had begun an affair with one of his co-workers, a 26-year-old named Vicki Wall. Vicki disappeared in July of 1994. Residents near Kalamazoo were shaken by her disappearance. John, who had recently quit his job as a long-haul truck driver, was working at Textile Systems Incorporated. This was where he and Vicki had met. Surveillance footage captured Vicky getting into a black pickup truck with a bearded man in the Meyer parking lot on Gull Road at 3 o'clock in the morning. That was the last time she was seen alive. When the Kalamazoo County Sheriff's deputy questioned John, John was evasive and initially denied any knowledge of Vicky's disappearance. However, when confronted with the surveillance video, he admitted to meeting her but claimed she was alive when he left her. The deputy had a gut feeling that John was responsible for Vicky's disappearance. John's behavior became more suspicious when he attempted to take his own life with a combination of pills and alcohol. 
During subsequent interviews with detectives, he mentioned having blackout spells and expressed concern that he may have harmed her during one of those episodes. His wife also revealed to a friend that he had multiple personalities and often felt like he was watching himself from somewhere else when he was engaged in certain activities. The detectives were determined to find evidence against him and thoroughly examined his black pickup truck. Although they couldn't find any visible signs of blood, they used luminol to check for it. The luminol test revealed several spots that glowed, indicating the presence of blood. However, at that time, DNA testing was still in its early stages. It would have required a significant amount of fresh blood for analysis, and there just wasn't enough. As the investigation progressed, Vicky's relatives continued their search for her body, convinced that she was buried nearby. Their worst fears were confirmed six weeks after her disappearance, when a local resident stumbled upon a gruesome scene. While walking down a two-lane track near his parents' home, he noticed what he described as drag marks going through the tall grass, and he followed them. This path led the resident to a white tennis shoe and a trail of bent-over weeds. As he followed the trail, the stench overwhelmed him, and he discovered Vicky's badly decomposed body partially covered by a shirt and bra around her neck. I can't imagine that there were actual visible drag marks six weeks after she was killed, but maybe there were. My guess is that John revisited the scene, but that's purely speculation on my part. An autopsy couldn't determine the cause of death, but the pathologist believed it was homicide. Armed with this new evidence, prosecutors charged John with murder, However, due to the lack of conclusive evidence and the difficulty in determining the cause of death, he ultimately pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. He apologized to Vicky's family during his sentencing, referring to her death as a tragic accident without providing any further details. He also told them that he loved her. Police believed that John's motive was that Vicky was pressuring him about their affair and that perhaps she'd threatened to tell his wife. The judge recognized John's dangerous nature and sentenced him to the maximum term of 8 to 15 years in prison. During his time there, his disturbing fantasies came to light. He revealed to a prison psychologist that he had a desire to kill the prosecutor and his defense attorney and engage in necrophilic acts with their bodies. The prison authorities promptly warned both about the threats. In 2007, after serving nearly 13 years for Vicky's death, John was released from prison. Despite going through therapy and treatment for violent offenders, his son Gabriel claimed that his father had not changed and that he refused to acknowledge his mental illness or to seek help for it. A free man, John White relocated to Mount Pleasant and took on the persona of Pastor White, a man who preached peace and goodwill to his congregation but harbored an evil side that remained hidden from the public's view. If there was good in John, it was that he would eventually admit to police what he had done to Rebecca that night. Behind closed doors, he'd scoured the darkest corners of the internet. He immersed himself in depravity and fed his darkest desires. His computer screen flickered with images that fascinated and repulsed him. Murder and necrophilia were still on his mind. John had become adept at concealing his true nature, 
making sure that no one would ever discover the secrets that had consumed him. For years, he hid his true desires from prying eyes. But as summer ended, and fall wrapped Mount Pleasant and its residents in its chilling embrace, John's fantasies had grown more intense. They became all-consuming, and for the two weeks prior to Halloween, they were focused on one person. He sat at home that night drinking beers and obsessing over the object of his desire, while her mother and his fiancé slept nearby. Meanwhile, across the trailer park, Rebecca had been preparing her home for Halloween by putting the final touches for the big day in place. As she tucked her son into bed and kissed him goodnight, she had no idea that it would be for the last time. At two in the morning, Rebecca was sleeping peacefully when she was startled awake by a chilling sound and a sense of panic. She walked out of her room, her heart pounding in her chest, worried that her son was up or something worse. In a horrifying instant, John pounced on her. His face was contorted with a mixture of madness and sadistic pleasure. He held a rubber mallet in his hand and with brutal force struck Rebecca repeatedly. Her cries for help drowned out by the sickening thud of the mallet as he hit her in the head. Rebecca had recognized her assailant, the man she had trusted, and the man she thought she knew. She said, I know you, but there was no time to process the shock because John tightened a zip tie that he had placed around her neck and cut off her air supply. He then undressed her body and touched her. He told police he didn't remember if he had sex with her, according to the affidavit, but later he told police he tried to get an erection but couldn't. He said he loaded the body, the bloodied towels he had used to clean up her blood, and the rubber mallet into one large garbage bag. Then he put the bag into the back of his truck, and when he did, it ripped and some items spilled out. He threw her wallet, her phone, and car keys in a trash container in the trailer park and disposed of the other items at the intersection where Rebecca's body would later be found. The Michigan State Police Crime Lab found blood in both Rebecca's and John's trailers, as well as blood and a necklace in the back of White's truck. His true nature came to the surface in the early hours of Halloween morning, leaving Sally, Rebecca's mother, in a state of profound shock. Not only had she lost her beloved daughter, but she found out that she'd fallen in love with the murderer. At Rebecca's memorial, Sally stood before the gathered mourners, her voice trembling with grief and anger. She pled for justice, demanding that the man who had shown no mercy to her daughter face the full consequences of his actions. In the courtroom, as the judge pronounced the sentence, John gazed around the room with an unsettling detachment seemingly unaffected by the pain he had inflicted on Rebecca and her loved ones. The judge handed down a severe sentence, condemning John to spend between 56 and 85 years behind bars. When Teresa, John's first known victim, the survivor, heard about Rebecca's murder and the fact that she had a son, she said, I really hurt for that little boy. I really hurt for her family. They trusted him, so I know exactly what they're going through. I'm really upset with the system, a system that failed Rebecca. Upset isn't a strong enough word for the feelings that victim Vicki Wall's relatives had. They had predicted he would kill again. In a manner of speaking, John wasn't done murdering. He didn't succeed with suicide after Vicki's death, 
but he would succeed after Rebecca was murdered. He hung himself in his jail cell in 2013. You are safe from John Douglas White this Halloween, but be aware of all the other ghosts, ghouls, and things that go bump in the night. Thank you so much for listening to Twisted Travel and True Crime and for all the good things you do to support this podcast. I have several thank yous to give out. Um, It's been a while since I've done them. And so I first want to thank everybody who has sent a podcast or an episode rather um, recommendation. I have a list of those and I'm sorry I can't get to every single one, but I am going to do my best to get through many of them. I also have a huge thank you to everyone who has recommended Twisted Travel and True Crime on their favorite social media. I know that there are some of you out there who are doing that for me and man, it just fills my heart with joy because I don't spend much time on that and I know that I should if I want this podcast to grow and succeed. So huge thank you to you. And last but not least, I truly want to thank everybody who has rated and reviewed the podcast. I do have a couple to read. Um, The first one is from Good Enough Bus, True Style Done with Style and Empathy. The podcast is well-researched, high quality, no music, no salacious details, and Sandy has the best voice around. You are so sweet. Thank you. The next one from Seriously, Is This Name Okay? says, The best true crime podcast on the market. Great research, excellent commentary. Thank you, and I love that name. Uh, Next, we have Love This Podcast, five stars. This is a refreshing, no-nonsense podcast. The stories are well laid out and researched. The narrator has a great, soothing, instead of irritating or harsh voice, and she does a great job telling the stories. I've sent this podcast to several friends and family members that also enjoy true crime. Thank you, AUB411. I appreciate you, especially sharing it with friends. You guys are the best. Thank you so much. And to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Happy Halloween!